Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. Today we're going to be looking at music in the ancient Greek world, specifically musicians who went against the grain, who were innovators, who were people who created musical pieces that seemed to have actually shocked certain individuals and even drew the attention of some of the most famous philosophers of the time. And we'll cap it off with a few tales about people in slightly later time periods as well. Now, just like with many other things that the ancient Greeks did that were mythological roots, for example, Orpheus, the musician who in the tragic story is able to charm both people as well as animals with his music, Also, the very idea of inspiration to create music comes from the concept of the goddesses known as the nine muses, and that even gives us our word in English, music, and similar words in other languages. Now, there are references to music from much earlier in ancient Western civilization than ancient Greece, remnants of musical instruments like harps from Ur in Mesopotamia in what is now Iraq. We even have a musical piece encoded in cuneiform on a clay tablet in the language called the Hurrian language. This tablet was found at the Bronze Age site of Ugarit in modern-day Syria and dates to about 1400 BC. It is a hymn to the goddess Nikal and seems to be completely vocal, so it's been reconstructed several times in the last few decades, although each time a group does it, it sounds almost completely different. This is because the text and its notation are very hard to interpret. The ancestors of the instruments used in ancient Greece do appear to have come from the Near East or Middle East, as we would commonly say. There's the flute, which is called the olos in Greek. It has a later variation, a double olos or pipes, where you have two actual lengths sticking out from the mouth of the player. One produces a kind of drone The other has holes for fingering notes to create a melody. But both parts of the double alas were powered by the breath of the musician. There's also a strummed stringed instrument, the lyra, or lyra, which gives us the term lyrics, and a development of that into the kithara, which is the root of the word guitar. This was originally a seven-string instrument, where the strings would be played in various successions completely as open strings. No ability to fret the strings like you would on, say, a guitar today. You may have heard of the different musical modes, which were detailed by philosophers and authors later. These are various tonal scales, a total of seven of them, actually, many of which would have, in their original form, sounded very dissonant to us, because modern music theory has very much tempered out some of the dissonance in these scales. Some of the names of these modes relate to ancient Greek tribal concepts like Dorian and Ionian, and then others like Lydian are non-Greek. Lydia was actually a region in southwestern Anatolia, or modern Turkey. A lot of ancient Greek music had ritual connotations or had a very traditional basis in military marches. For example, there was a song called the Pian, which was sung by the armies of many Greek city-states before battle to boost morale. It was also sung after victories in celebration. It said that harps in armies from the island of Crete were used to inflame courage before battle. It might be difficult for people today to imagine getting riled up by the sounds of harps, but this was a different culture. The musicians and singers in these Cretan armies were conscripted just like soldiers were and could be punished for desertion as well. 
The Romans had military instruments made of bronze. The tuba in Latin, which was actually much closer to a trumpet today, And the one that seems to have been incredibly frightening, do you actually use the sounds of it against your enemies to strike fear into their hearts on the battlefield, was used by the Celts, the Gauls, the Dacians, various Central European tribes known as the Carnix. And this was a bronze tube that ended in some kind of a mock-up of an animal head. It could be a snake or dragon. As it was held upright and blown into by the user, the person playing the carnix could also manipulate a metal tongue that was built into the mechanism. And by all accounts, the din created by these things was terrifying, especially when there were a lot of them being played at once. Some musicians are even said to have been able to work magic through the power of sound. One notable example is Thaletus from Gorton, a city in Crete. He is said to have performed a song that dispelled a plague in Sparta sometime around the 7th century BC. There was another musician, Pythion, who is said to have cured some kind of outbreak of mass hysteria at the Greek city of Locri. Just as an aside, there's a story from the Roman author Lucian of an episode of mass hysteria related to the theater in the Greek city of Abdera, which is on the northern Aegean coastline. Suddenly, the population of Abdera was struck with some kind of a fever, and they also experienced nosebleeds, and they were reciting lines from a play called Andromeda by the Greek author Euripides. All this supposedly happened at the end of the 4th century or beginning of the 3rd century BC, and Lucian says that that very play had just been performed in the city. Anyway, back to the therapeutic power of music, there was an idea that riots could even be stopped by music, but the right kind of music, this was the important idea here, that the tones themselves could affect people. And so some powerful individuals in different ancient Greek communities thought that if you are too creative musically, if you innovate too much and stray from established norms and patterns, that you're actually presenting a threat to society. And some cities like Argos and Sparta had laws where musical innovators could be punished. We'll come back to this later. But I find this really interesting because in modern times, recent decades, so-called guardians of morality who go after musical artists, calling them some kind of a threat to society, they always focus on the lyrics themselves. And you don't hear too much of this in ancient times. The criticism is of the actual choices of notes. The sounds of the music itself were what concerned these people. Terpender is probably the musician associated with the traditional kithara, a seven-string kithara, and represents the ideal that many of these ancient musicians were supposedly striving to emulate. things happened in relation to Athens during the 5th century BC, where the Athenians created the Delian League, a military alliance of islands and coastal cities, all geared towards the maintenance of a navy. This Delian League is seen by many to have eventually turned into a kind of Athenian empire, and it made Athens the center of wealth in the eastern Mediterranean. 
And so the creative people went there too, if they weren't already there. Artists, sculptors, and musicians needed patronage to survive. It seems that under the social and economic pressure seen in Athens by the late 5th century, as we get close to the time of the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War, there's some kind of movement, a far more theatrical and almost anarchic style of music. The story goes that the musical pioneers were double olas players who came up with very creative new ways of playing their instrument, and then Kithara players tried to emulate what they were doing on their own instruments. One famous double alas player named Pronomus put a lot of physicality into his playing, that his body would gyrate and spin as he performed. Some people thought this was scandalous. Other people seemed to really sort of get into it. Another flute player named Sakatis would accompany narrators reciting various stories from mythology. For example, the god Apollo fighting Python, a huge serpent creature and that Sakatis could use his flute to imitate the hiss of this mythological beast. Up to this time, the musical ideal had been simplicity. Now they are playing as many notes as they want to, and making music far more complex than anything heard before. And it had to have been at least somewhat successful, or musicians of the time would not have continued to do it. Now, as the Kithara players tried to apply these same techniques to their playing, they found the traditional seven-string instrument to be just too limiting. So strings were added all the way up to a 12-string. They developed certain playing techniques that expanded the range of the instrument even further. In a way, I think it's very much like the so-called rock guitar gods of the 70s and 80s. And these new instruments and styles would be used to accompany various kinds of recited poetry called dithyrambs. And the dithyrambs themselves got extremely out there, you might say. Eventually, there was an insult that you could use in Athens if you thought somebody was just babbling nonsense. And it was, that makes about as much sense as a dithyramb. One composer named Philoxenus wrote a poem about the story of Cyclops and Odysseus where a singer actually dressed up as the Cyclops and did a duet with Odysseus. And it seems the most famous or infamous of these new Kithara gods was a musician named Timotheus. He had come to Athens from a town called Miletus, around the coast of what is now Turkey. And at first, his stuff was just too much for people. He could not gain any popularity. He was seen as too bizarre. And Timotheus is said to have become so despondent that he actually contemplated suicide. But there was one writer of plays who was very impressed by him, and this was Euripides. Euripides himself, for his own sake, was a very creative author of tragedies, had a style that was very different than anything the Athenians had seen before, and he often felt unappreciated. Eventually, Euripides left and moved to Macedonia. But he decided to give a commission to Timotheus to write a musical overture for a play that he was doing called The Persians, commemorating the victory of the Athenians and other Greeks at the naval battle of Salamis in 480 BC during the Second Persian War. By this point, this was some 70 years or so in the past, but nobody in Athens would have had any problem being familiar with the subject of this play. Well, part of this musical overture has actually survived on a piece of papyrus. The lyrics are very hard to translate. It's describing very vividly the wreckage of the Persian ships and the bodies floating in the Strait of Salamis. 
and a few survivors who made it to shore begging for their lives from Greek soldiers. And it goes into a kind of mingled Persian and Greek babble, some kind of dialect, where they're pleading for their lives. They say, me no want to hurt the Greeks, and comes across as almost a bit silly, but of course it's all on how the delivery actually would have happened. As it turned out, the Persians was a hit, number one with a bullet in Athens, and this completely rehabilitated Timotheus's reputation. Timotheus also performed alongside double Olaus players who could mimic the sounds of storms or of the screams of women in the pangs of childbirth. It said that Timotheus was a musician that specifically attracted the ire of the government in Sparta. The leaders in Sparta at the time did not like the fact that Timotheus used a kithara that had more strings than the traditional ones. When he arrived there and was getting ready for a performance, some Spartan officials called Ephors showed up backstage, I guess, and said, you can only perform if you let us cut off a couple strings from that instrument of yours. Of course, he refused. Now, what we know about these so-called new musicians often comes from hostile things that were said about them by philosophers at the time. Philosophers were very concerned with music, with sound in general, Pythagoras supposedly walking by a blacksmith shop on his home island of Samos, hearing the cacophony of all the sounds of the hammers hitting the anvils as they forged the metal. At one key moment, supposedly heard the hammers come down at the same time, just by chance, in just the right way, to create a musical tone. And this led him to believe that musical tones and sounds were a mathematically ordered way of understanding the laws of nature and the universe around us. Two famous dialogues attributed to the philosopher Plato, The Laws and the Republic, address these issues as well because they discuss what kinds of music should and should not be allowed in the ideal Greek city. In this approach, quote-unquote, bad types of music, music that could affect the citizens of this community in some kind of negative way, should be forbidden by the authorities. Really, only one musical mode is presented as being appropriate, and this was the Dorian mode, again associated with Sparta, with military music. Platonic philosophy favored this mode in music because it was majestic music. This was the kind of thing that supposedly would promote moral behavior because it was morally edifying to listen to. Plato's student Aristotle, who went off in his own direction of Greek philosophy, felt that a lot of the new music of his day was vulgar, it was too noisy. Other authors agreed. One named Phorecrates describes lady music, a personification or goddess of music, complaining that she's being tortured by the songs played by Timotheus and these other new musicians of Athens, actually physically abused by the multitudes of notes which are described as like perverted paths of ants and it simply twists and bends her body so much that she's actually in pain. Aristophanes, who wrote comedy plays, despite how vulgar and crude and dirty the scripts of these plays could be, Aristophanes was essentially a fairly conservative Athenian. He said that hearing these new musicians was like getting radished, as in a radish shoved where the sun doesn't shine. That was actually the legal punishment for men who were convicted of adultery. There's also a character in one of his plays who describes the new music as making him want to vomit bile.
For my money, though, the greatest rebel musician of ancient times was not Greek, but Roman, and it was the Emperor Nero. If you know anything about Nero, he was somebody who believed himself to be an incredibly creative person, somebody talented in athletics as well as music and acting, and it seems that he was good at none of the above. Problem is, he was the emperor of Rome, so he could force people to sit through things. Now, in Roman culture, anybody who got on a stage and performed was generally somebody of very low status, not much better than a slave. And this made what Nero did even more scandalous. The fact that the songs were terrible made it all even worse. And his musical performances of his own compositions were true command performances, as in once everybody was in there, the gates were locked and nobody was allowed to leave until the performance was done. While Nero played the kithara and sang, there were individuals, including high-ranking senators, who pretended to pass out from what we will call today medical emergencies, just so they could be carried out of there without offending the emperor and risking their lives. Other people were known to jump over the walls or gates, and sometimes these went on for a really long time. Suetonius says that one female audience member actually gave birth right in the middle of one of these extended pieces that Nero performed. Now, given what I said earlier about Greek philosophers being opposed to using certain kinds of notes and modes and sounds in music because they thought they were dangerous and they would corrupt people, you might be reminded of the story of the so-called Devil's Interval, or Diabolus in Musica in Latin. This is the tritone, a scale with a diminished fifth, one half step lower, that gives a certain dissonant, spooky sound. Now, it's been used in various musical pieces, and it's even used in emergency sirens today. But contrary to popular belief, we don't have any cases on record of anyone actually getting in direct trouble, being accused of heresy or anything like that, for using the devil's interval in music. But from the Middle Ages, we do have some intriguing individuals who wrote poetry that was set to music, and these men and some women are generally called troubadours today. The original troubadours were from what is now the south of France, and they wrote in a Romance language that is coming close to extinction now called Aquitan. William IX of Aquitan was a nobleman who has some of the oldest known troubadour poetry and music, and it is preserved with musical notation. So some modern musicians have actually reconstructed some of these songs. William of Aquitan pretty much did whatever he wanted. He was married, but he was unhappy with his wife, so he dallied quite a bit, was actually very notorious for his sexual conquests, and he talked about them in his music as well. He had a mistress who was called Dangerous, or Dangerosa, as he refers to her in the songs, and she was, for a period of time, one of his so-called kept women in his castle, this actually did get him excommunicated by the church for a period of time, but there was a clergyman who had been sent by the Pope at the time to tell him that he had to put aside this woman, Dangerosa, and this papal envoy was completely bald, and William the Ninth told him, hair's going to grow on your head before I give this woman up. He has a surviving piece of troubadour music that's generally called the Red Cat Song, where he boasts of having an orgy with Dangerosa and another female friend where he had sex with them both exactly 188 times. Very thorough in his scorekeeping. 
There's also a troubadour known only as Macabro. A little bit obscure in his background, seems to have been a horror child left as a foundling on the doorstep of a local lord. He was eventually executed for his satirical poetry, and troubadours actually went so far as to do things like make fun of crusaders who came back from the Holy Land and were unsuccessful. But Markabu was also very obsessed with carnal pursuits, and he had a song where he talks about the game of the and I'm not going to say the word because it's a very rude term. In English, it starts with a C, ends with a T, and has United Nations in the middle. Thanks, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Send me emails at appaleus15 at hotmail.com or go on Twitter at ancientwith. I'm looking forward to having everyone back for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.